One of the great things that happened to me was when my grandpa passed away, you know, we opened his will, my dad and I together. We were very, very surprised to see a handwritten note in his will that said, Joe, please place my ashes in the mouth of the Halifax Harbor. And we were a little confused by it at first because he had never lived there. And then we remembered and were struck by the fact that that was the most important day of his life, the day he came with nothing and, and landed at Pier 21. So, you know, my parents chartered a little boat and, and, and put Andy's ashes just off McNabb Island. And later my grandma, when she passed a few years later, and in fact, in 2016, my brothers and their spouses and nieces and nephews, we took my parents, Connie and Joe's ashes out to place them with grandma and grandpa. And it was a great way for us to reinforce our, our love for the dream he had to create a better family, his love and pride in his country, Canada. We were all very grateful that the, the best fortune Andy ever had was to, to root his dreams here in Canada. So we were grateful for all of that. I love autobiographies, true stories that involve courage and conviction. I especially love them when they span generations and they involve families, where lives and livelihood are intertwined and the torch must be passed from one generation to another. This story begins in 1927. A Hungarian who's 24 years old, doesn't speak a word of English, sails into Halifax with $5 in his pocket, but with a dream. His name is Andrew Peller and he spends his lifetime chasing opportunity. Fast forward to 34 years after he arrives and behind him with several business ventures, some that succeeded and some that failed, Andrew buys a vineyard in the Okanagan Valley. He has a vision of creating a national culture where Canadians, much like Europeans, appreciate and share premium quality wines with family and friends. Today, his grandson, John Peller, like his father before him, continues to build on Andrew Peller's dream. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network, and this is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Each week, I chat with ordinary people who do extraordinary things despite circumstance, and their life lessons inspire us to do more and be more. Today, my special guest is one of Canada's most admired entrepreneurs, John Peller. John, welcome. Thanks so much. It's great to be with you. So, John, before we get into your life, I, I think it's important in the context to take the listeners back. And if you can believe it, we're going back to 1927. And that's when your grandfather, Andrew, first came to Canada. Is that correct? That's correct. So tell me a little bit about Andrew and what you've learned from your family history, what it was like to come in and what age he was and what was Canada doing at that time. And what was his dreams? I love to tell people, Tony, that the most important day in my life happened long before I was born. And in fact, it was that day in, in March of 1927 when my grandpa first set foot in Canada at Pier 21. Very young at the time. I believe he was around 24 years old. But he had married his childhood sweetheart. They lived in a small village on the, on the banks of the Danube River in, in Hungary. And they married as teenagers. They had 
three children, which is the number of boys I have in my family. But sadly, through through various diseases and, and, and challenges of poverty, they lost two of their of their sons. My grandma finally looked at my grandpa and told him, Andy, you need to do something or we're never going to have a family. And he was obviously overwhelmed with his circumstances and he knew he had to leave to fight to find a better way for his family. And he he ended up finding passage to Canada through Calais on a, on a boat that uh, brought him to Pier 21 in Halifax. And he, he didn't really plan to come to Canada. I think he would have gone to anywhere he could get into, but he just was, you know, acting in, in, in desperation out of out of his love for his wife and his remaining child, which was my dad, Joe, and and good fortune found him a passage to Canada. Is it safe to say that it still takes incredible courage to get on a ship? I mean, it's, it's one thing to dream things and to say, go make a better life. But when you're, where was he from originally? He was born and raised in Hungary. They were, they were a family that had been there for two generations of farmers from the, they were originally from Southern Germany and Bavaria. My dad and I reflected often through our lives on his voyage, and, and it was a hell of a passage because he, you know, he was on a, a liner that ended up having livestock in the lower level, and, and he said the, and all the passengers were just brutally sick and, and, and ill as a result of the rough weather and the stench on the, on the boat. But, you know, I, I think there are times, you know, when people know they have to act bravely and with courage. And I remember being with my mom and dad later in their life. And we were telling this story to a group of people at the winery. And my dad made the comment, I don't think I would have ever had the courage to do that. And then right after that, my mom piped up, oh, yes, you would have. And I think when you're really motivated by love and, and, and the right values and principles, you'll, you'll do whatever you need to do to survive. So he lands in Canada, 23, 24 years old. Uh, does he speak English? Not a word. Has no idea of really what he's heading into. Really, these skills, I guess, is as a farmer. What happens next to him? In fact, he had the part of his commitment to get his visa was he ends up getting on a train right at Pier 21 and travels for four nights and days on a train and ends up in Winnipeg. And it's in winter. And he told me, he had never imagined being able to travel four days and nights without seeing people or villages, you know, the way Europe is so populated with small villages. So, you know, he told me he thought he ended up being on the moon or something. And, and he thought, oh, my God, what have I done with my life? But he he did the farm assignment, I think, for three or four months. But he he spoke both German and Hungarian. And he had heard there was a large uh, German community in, in Kitchener. He quickly got a passage to Kitchener and then took a took a trade working in a, in a small uh, facility. And then his right his life uh, started to go get better for, for him from then. So how does a young man trying to understand a different language, maybe finding a bit of a, uh, a safety net, being part of a community where he at least understands language and the culture? How does he go from being I'm just happy to have a job and provide to deciding that maybe his destiny is going to be an entrepreneur. He was a genuine entrepreneur. He was one of those people that was going to start up a business, whether you told him it was smart or not. He was, he was so motivated and, and so inspired. He had natural kind of construction engineering skills. 
I mean, his biggest problem was maintaining focus on ideas, not whether he had enough of them or the courage to go after them. So, you know, he in Kitchener, he started working in a brewery and and uh, he eventually had a, a career in the brewing industry. But he also started a car dealership and he worked in a munitions factory and he had a grocery store. And it was one idea and one business after another. But um, he made he made a considerable fortune um, in the beer industry in in the early fifties. He worked with E. P. Taylor, who had hired him as his a brewmaster, and uh, he eventually sold that brewery back to Canadian breweries that he started in Hamilton, and, and he made this fortune. And then he put it into a a newspaper in Hamilton, the Hamilton Daily News, which he thought would compete with the Globe and Mail for the morning news business in Canada. This is Tony Chapman. You're listening to Chatter That Matters, presented by RBC. We come back, we're going to continue to talk about John Peller's grandfather, Andrew. Came here 27, penniless, didn't understand the language, ends up in Winnipeg, finds his way in, uses his natural talents as an entrepreneur, builds up a brewery business, sells it. He's now sitting on a fortune. He decides his next play is the newspaper business to compete with the Globe and Mail. Wait till you see what happens next. Look, I know you and me don't exactly see eye to eye on certain things. I mean, we don't see eye to eye on just about anything. But Dad, I come to believe that I got it in me to be somebody in this world. And it's not because I'm so different from you either. It's because I'm the same. I mean, I can be just as hard-headed and just as tough. I only hope I can be as good a man as you are. Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman continues. Welcome back to Chatter That Matters. I'm chatting with John Peller, one of Canada's most admired entrepreneurs. And admiration is how John Peller speaks about his grandfather. So, John, your grandfather, Andrew, decides he wants to work for himself. John, I get car dealers and breweries, but buying a newspaper? It was interesting that he did invest in a newspaper because, you know, his English skills were marginal at best. And, and you know, we were all kind of surprised and, and, and shocked. And in fact, within three years, you know, he had lost his entire fortune in that paper. He was competing with the Spectator. There wasn't enough advertising revenue to support two papers in, in Hamilton. And, you know, in a very short period of time, everything he had worked, you know, 57 years of his life to build, he lost. And how did he, that make him feel? Because a lot of people would, that would be very tough to recover from, especially when his original motivation to go to Canada was about security, securing his family, taking care of them. And he rolls the dice and it doesn't end up on the on the sevens that he wants. How did he talk about that moment in his life? I mean, it would be unfair to say anything short of that he was broken and he was totally despondent and morose and he had let himself down and, and he felt he had let his family down. So he, he definitely, you know, was was struck by the tragedy. But as entrepreneurs, you know, are known to do, they have short memories. And, and the same energy and, and focus on new ideas took, quickly took hold of him. You know, he's now almost 60 years old and, you know, facing the prospects of starting all over again. So he thought, I'm going to go back to my 
roots as a brewmaster. He understood fermentation, and he always believed that that the the lifestyle of of Europeans with wine and food would eventually come to Canada. So, with that kind of intuition, he decided he would start a winery, and that was in 1961. Interesting as you're listening to this, when you hear words like intuition with entrepreneurs, you know, in marketing, the fancy term is insight. I have an insight. But what we're really hearing about is the ability to identify an unmet need. That happened over in Europe. That could come to Canada. If that's a wave that's going to break, I want to make sure I'm top of it. So it's, he's age 60. He starts a winery. You know, he wanted to start the winery in, in Ontario, but he applied for a license. Leslie Frost was the premier at the time, and his wife was a prohibitionist. And, and she did not want any beverage alcohol permits issued under his watch. And, and, and on top of that, the, the marketing genius of my grandpa in the beer business was that you weren't allowed to advertise beverage alcohol, but he got around that by starting an ice cube company that had the same name as his beer company. And he started advertising the ice cube company on the radio. You know, the announcers would say, don't forget to take tonight to your party to take the pellers. And then he'd wait, 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 and then say ice at the very end. So he had infuriated the bureaucracy and they weren't out to help him either. So I love that story. So he's not allowed to advertise beer. So he creates an ice cube company with the same name. Don't forget to take your peller ice cubes to the party. It's just genius. Now let's talk. Your dad joins the winery business, but your dad was pretty accomplished in medicine, wasn't he? Yeah. My dad, in fact, was very, very different from his father. You know, my, my grandpa was a driving, a driven entrepreneur who never saw risk and, and just was so ambitious. My father was academic. He loved school as a young teenager. He got into University of Toronto when he was 16. He wanted to be a doctor, applied and was a very successful student and graduated in, in, when he was 21. Had practiced medicine for you know some 20 years before his father started that business. But when my grandpa was trying to capitalize and looking for money to, to start the wine business, he had to go to my dad, who brought in five of his medical buddies. They each chipped in $5,000 that was critical to starting that wine business. And when the business started to struggle in its early days, the bank called my dad and while well, he was doing rounds in a hospital and, and told him that they were going to call the loan and put the business down. And my dad kind of asked, was there anything he could do? And they said, well, if you want to get out there and try to help him and turn this around, but you better go quick. So I was in, in grade three at the time, living in Ancaster with my four brothers and sister. My dad just came home uh, in the ordinary course of a day and announced to, to everybody at dinner that night that we were all going to jump on a train and head out to Vancouver to help grandpa. I know that my father, more than any single thing, was motivated by love to support his dad more than anything. He didn't have an, an initial calling to get into business and, and he loved his life as a physician, but I, I know he had always felt indebted to, to my grandpa for everything he did to give him a better life and he felt it was critical to go and help and him. So your dad takes the family on a train to Vancouver. Out of the station wagon with, with all our you know, clothes in, in a few bags and, and we took the three-day train trip across to... Uh, to Vancouver. Was it an adventure to you or was it absolute fear? I remember, I remember the conversation. We, we, we said to my dad, are you crazy? We're not going out west. 
we we want you to stay here and be a doctor. In other words, even as young kids, you know, the the, the thought of uprooting and, and, and moving just didn't sit well with us. You got to spend some time with your grandfather you probably wouldn't have had, right? He had already bought one of the first vineyards in, in the Okanagan a year or two earlier. The funny thing was you talked about his marketing intuition. We always have laughed our whole life over the fact that Andy's idea to, to get into the wine industry was a great idea. The trouble was he was 30 years too early. In the 1960s, there was no wine industry. 80% of the wine consumed in Canada was sherry and port. Trying to find a way to survive and keep the lights on became the order of the day. They stumbled into the sparkling wine phenomena of the 60s and 70s. And they had seen that there was a product in the U.S. called Cold Duck, which was kind of a, a sweet, sparkling wine. And the, the observation was North Americans, you know, liked all their beverages, cold, sweet and sparkling. So they launched a Cold Duck product that did well. And then they decided to innovate and came out with the concept of Baby Duck. So we fast forward. So when did you get involved with the business? I mean, you go out there at age three, so there must have been a lot that happened to keep those lights on up until you were ready to say, I I want to join this business. After they were successful in in the sparkling wine industry, we moved back to Ontario, built another facility there, one out in the East Coast and, and in Quebec as well. The company had to go public. It grew very, very quickly and, and, and did very well. You know, I, I finished high school in Ancaster and uh, I went to Western and, and, and studied law at Western. I practiced for a short period of time. I always kind of knew, though, that I was drawn to business. And, and eventually I took a job with Nabisco Brands in, in the U.S. And it was right around the time when Canada was negotiating free trade with the with the U.S. in 1988, and and the prospects for our wine business wine business were not very good. And my dad essentially called me one morning and said, "I'm flying down to have lunch with you." And when he arrived, he told me, "You know, John, it's not an opportunity for us to sell the business. That the, the value is so low. I really could use some help. Would you consider? Would you consider joining me for a few years? And and we'll just see how things go." Naturally, I asked my dad if my siblings were supportive because I didn't want to do it unless my brothers and, 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 and sister were supportive. Brought my wife, Diane, with me. We got married the, the year we flew back to, to Toronto and um, we've never looked back. Would you describe yourself more of the academic father or the entrepreneurial grandfather? I honestly believe that I'm, I'm quite a bit of both. I'm definitely not the entrepreneur my grandfather was. Entrepreneurs don't see risk. I like to think I have entrepreneurial traits, but I'm not that driven entrepreneur that he was. And, and I have a lot of my, my dad's interest in academia. He was a prolific reader and it's one of my favorite pastimes as well. So, you know, whether it's wanting to be like both of them, I, I, I really do relate to both of the type of people that they were and, and, and like to think I have a pleasant combination of the two. Hi, it's Tony Chapman, and this is Chatter That Matters. When we come back, John has to make the decision of a lifetime. Hi, it's Tony Chapman, host of Chatter That Matters, presented by RBC. RBC provides small business owners with resources that go beyond banking. Resources that help them attract new customers, build strong employee teams, and manage their money. To get access to these services, go to rbc.com slash beyondbanking. Small businesses matter to RBC. 
Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman continues. Welcome back to Chatter That Matters. I'm chatting with John Peller, one of Canada's most admired entrepreneurs. John, you've moved back to work with your dad. Talk about how that transition went because you went from working for him to eventually running the company. You know, I felt confident when I returned. If you recall, there wasn't much, there wasn't much of a wine industry at all in the Niagara region at the time. And, and one of the things about a crisis is that it forces you to make aggressive decisions quickly. And we made a decision to double down our investment in the Niagara Peninsula on grapes that we had originally planted in the mid eighties, but we were slowly discovering that, that the quality was very high and the wine we were making was very good. It was really the Europeans who had kind of discouraged us from getting into the viticulture business. And, you know, we planted lots of Chardonnay and, and, and Riesling and the results were very positive. Before you knew it, we were doing a lot better than we ever thought we would. You made some aggressive decisions. What advice can you give to people when times are tough and you have to move at the speed of life? How do you mitigate risk and still keep the ball moving forward? I mean, that's an incredible question. And in, in COVID times, all businesses like ours are, are dealing with those same pressures now. We went through the hell of having to originally downsize and cut all our costs and lay people off. And then at the same time, try to make investments to grow and restructured our capital. We took out large borrowings. And in the end, we, we were committed to a, to a vision that we could compete with the best wines in the world on quality. We went out and made an acquisition at the time with Hillebrand Estates, which has now become the Trias Winery. Bought another brand or two. We started a few new brands as well. It didn't take long before the strategy took root and, and started to produce very strong results. Was it ever a time when this sort of transition of power from your dad to yourself, there, there was issues? Because obviously you had to unmake some of the decisions he had made. What happened was after I was there for three years, my dad showed up in my office 4.30 on a Friday afternoon. He walked in and he said, do you have a second son? And I said, dad, don't be ridiculous. What is it? He said, you know, John, I think you've done a great job. And I'm 100% confident that you're the right person to lead this company. So on Monday, I'm going to resign and make you the president and CEO. He said, I want you to know one thing. There can only be one leader. And from now on, that person will be you. And whatever you say, I will support you. Now, I'm going to give you my opinion and tell you the truth, whether you want to hear it or not. But like I said, whatever you says goes. He goes, I think you're going to do a great job. And he walked around by my desk, kissed me on the cheek and walked out the door. And that's how long our transition took. Six minutes. And was he opinionated along the way or did you guys find a way to just continue? It sounds like you're such a tight family. You know, it was one of the ways my dad was incredibly humble, wise, reflective, and mature. My grandpa could never have done that. He would have died with both oars in his arms and, and, and the traditional way that entrepreneurs, you know, can never yield power. But my dad, he had to be supportive in that role. And, and in fact, he lived up to his commitment Chatting with John Peller, the CEO of Peller Estates. We've had an incredible uh, chat so far. This will all be up as a podcast as well. The family, and we're just getting into this sense of passing the torch on from one generation to another. What are the problems that families face and how did you overcome them? The family is nature's greatest miracle. That's the famous quote from George Santayana. 
The family is one of nature's great masterpieces. And what he means by that is that despite all the dysfunction and challenge of trying to keep a family together, the family is really how we survive through life and, and hopefully endure, survive and thrive. But it, it takes a lot for families to be able to learn and grow. And that was one of the challenges that, that we faced as a family. It was easy for me to put more effort into it because of what my grandpa's real ambition was in the first place, which was to have a great family, not necessarily to have a great business. We eventually started a, a, a family council and, and made sure that everybody got engaged and participated and started to have the tough conversations you need to have to advance your relationships and strengthen them and make sure that there was a role for every person to be engaged and supported and that everything was done in a totally transparent and, and open, honest manner. Today, you're facing, I mean, the competition, the consolidation of this industry. Everybody's after scale and not just scale in terms of distribution and vineyards own, but scale in terms of your ability to invest in data and technology. How can Canadian-led companies compete knowing that boundaries are disappearing and it's really a, a matter of the survival of the fittest and the uh, smartest? Well, this is a very challenging time for business, make, make no doubts about it. At the very least, business leaders need to be resolutely focused on what's best in class in their industry and their core capabilities, not just what's the best in the local business area or the country, but the best in the world, because the best in the world comes and finds you very, very quickly. One of the obvious areas is digital transformation. And, and in the last two years, we've put in an entirely new ERP system and built a new e-commerce capability. But digitally, we will transform all functions in our business to be able to receive and process more information and act more quickly and effectively to bring new products to the, to the market to make sure we understand how consumers are changing. And the challenges of COVID and safety and health and you know, disrupted supply chains and the disrupted business model we have in, in Canada with provincial barriers and regulations it, it, it creates a very, very challenging environment. What advice can you give people listening that want to be an entrepreneur, not necessarily go in like your grandfather did and not accept risk, but try to balance the sense of risk and reward? What I would say is it's, it's obviously, you know, part science, but part art and intuition as well. You know, you have to search hard for opportunities, not, not just that there is a good idea, but that it's that there's a business model potential and capability for you to, to build some kind of, you know, competitive advantage. And that is very hard. I mean, you know, I tell people just make one good step at a time and don't always be trying to figure out what things should look like five and 10 years from now and, and just getting engaged and pursuing your, your goals and your dreams one step at a time helps people, you know, deal with those things that they can influence in the short term, as opposed to be, intimidated by or concerned about in the future. John, when you're looking at talent going forward, because the world is changing, is that changed in terms of the type of people you're going to need to uh, drive your organization in the future? I mean, I think the, the obvious observation is that people are working very differently now. And, and, and COVID has certainly accelerated this, that, that young people have different values and aspire to different lifestyles. 
they're better educated. They're much more, they have a higher digital acumen. So, so much has changed in, 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 in such a short period of time. You know, we're going to have a much more flexible work environment in the future. People demand, you know, more balanced lifestyles than what might have been in the past. There's tons of talent available. There's nothing but positive opportunity in industries everywhere. It just takes an extra commitment and motivation to to want to be able to persevere. I think that's what business and entrepreneurialism is really all about. And that's what I learned from my gram, my grandpa was that persevering transcends everything. You've got to have a lot of heart and commitment to be able to see yourself through a lot of challenge and disappointment along the way to get to someplace better. Chatting with John Peller, CEO of Peller Estates, one of the finest wine companies in the world. When we come back, I'm going to talk to John about Canada and our new economy and his views on the role that agriculture can play from farm to plate, or in the case of John, farm to glass. Don't ever let somebody tell you, you can't do something. Not even me. All right? All right. You got a dream, you got to protect it. People can't do something themselves. They want to tell you, you can't do it. You want something, go get it. Period. Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman continues. Today I chat with John Peller, one of North America's most successful winemakers. I now want to tap into John's brain as one of the business leaders in Canada. Because I'm a believer that for Canada in the future, we've got to start learning a way to earn our way forward. We can't just continue to bore our way forward. Agriculture doesn't always seem to be the first thing out. Everybody just talks technology or content. How important is agriculture to Canada? And what can we do to make sure, as you say, we're the best in the world at it, not just really good in Canada? I mean, I think our wine industry is living proof that you can create a new agricultural economy in, in a world economy where wine is an incredibly competitive industry. Now, having said that, you know, Canada's history and kind of legacy political institutions and structures are making it very, very difficult for us to compete. We're not allowed to send bottles of wine from one province to another without going through some type of a provincial tax toll. That's not what happens in other areas of the world. We're falling victim a bit to the to the legacy structures that exist between our province and our and our federal government on the one hand, and our commitment to trade agreements that I don't see being reciprocated in other parts of the world. The Europeans support their wine industry above all things. And so do the Californians, and so do the Chileans and Australians and you know Argentinians and in, in, in New Zealand. But we struggle to get basic support in our own country. When I go around the world and I look at agriculture and farming, more often than not, it's, it's, it's held the highest regard. In Canada, though, it seems to be almost taken for granted. What can we do to elevate how important agriculture is to the very essence of who we are as a country and our potential going forward? It's by far the most heavily subsidized industry in the world. It's kind of taken as a given that 
that the national governments are going to have to support their agriculture in order for it to survive. In Canada, you know, we've understood that as it relates to grain and maybe the poultry and, and dairy marketing boards. The difficulty is as as good as those institutions have have been to help preserve what I think are important industries in our country, and I think that they should be here. Sometimes marketing boards and legacy institutions don't always force innovation and you know new ideas and, and new industries to happen around them. They protect at all costs, and, and there is a cost. So I think our industry has fallen a bit of victim to that. You know, the governments will do anything for poultry, dairy, fish and grain, but they don't know where the wine industry fits because they don't have, you know, policies and, and, and support. I believe that it's not dissimilar with manufacturing. And, and there are naive views, you know, in, in, in particularly amongst conservatives, you know, that governments shouldn't support business. Well, they seem to support them in every other country in the world. You know, one of the best decisions we ever made was to support the auto industry so that it remained in southern Ontario. And, and we've benefited from incredible, you know, auto parts manufacturers, engineers, and secondary industries because we supported the auto industry. In the consumer products industry in Canada has been virtually hollowed out. Many of the best companies in our country have, have left and taken their manufacturing to the U.S. That was a great policy oversight by both our provincial and federal governments. You need to fight to keep jobs. Talking with John Peller, the CEO of Peller Wines, and John, if you were providing advice to a university class right now, and you could say, what matters most? What would your grandfather tell a student? What would your dad tell a student? What would you tell a student? So my, my response is, is, is all connected. The lesson I learned that brought this whole message to me together. And the lesson I learned was from Clay Christensen, the professor at Harvard. And Clay wrote a book called How Will You Measure Your Life? It was a, a lecture he did at the end of year of Harvard because he had been a Harvard graduate 35 years earlier. After his 30-year business career at Harvard, he went back and traced the history of all 150 people who were in his class at Harvard and why they were universally wealthy and made lots of money. Their personal lives were very, very unsuccessful. And Clay wondered, how could it be that the brightest and most capable young people in the U.S. got the greatest education, but somehow chose a path that made them a lot of money, but left them personally totally unfulfilled? And in fact, one of his classmates was Jeff Skilling, you know, who from Enron, who ended up in prison. So he wrote this book, How Will You Measure Your Life, to encourage young people to make sure they have their life priorities straight before they go and set their career goals. The most important thing to most people, when you distill life down to its essential genesis, is to strengthen the relationships in life that mean the most to you. And those tend to be the relationships with your family and close friends. You have to devote as much time to learning and growing in those relationships and putting effort into them so that you have a great family at the end of all of this because people find out, unfortunately, late in, late in life that pursuing financial goals leaves you in a very empty room when you get there. That is the message that I speak to students more than any single thing. It, it's one thing to have business ambitions and goals, but there better be a life plan for you that's every bit as important that you 
invest and focus as much effort in to your relationships, you know, with your spouse, with your children, with your friends, because, you know, that's why family is nature's greatest miracle. It's, it's tough to, to build and strengthen your family as you go. And, and unless you make it a goal, it's never going to happen. There's three things I want you to think about after this podcast ends. Is destiny a matter of choice or chance? It's no question that chance and luck always is involved. But my experience is the ones who make their lives matter believe that their destiny extends beyond the present. Second thing we learned is that family businesses are complicated. Passing the torch is never easy. Who has influence? Who has authority? And the person stepping in, will they be able to win over the organization or will they be branded as someone who got the job because of the boss's daughter or son? And finally, Canada, we're our own worst enemy. Interprovincial trade deals are hurting our ability to compete. We have to find a way to let the heart of our economy, small business owners, beat strong and beat free. John Pelly, your grandfather came here with $5 in a dream. I hope today he's looking down at you and raising a toast to what you've done to make that dream such a wonderful reality. Thanks for joining me on Chatter That Matters. Thank you, Tony. It's great to be with you and uh, look forward to seeing you soon. Over the past year and a half, I've been producing this radio show and podcast with RBC. And I've had the opportunity to meet so many small business owners across Canada. They truly are the heart of our economy. And for all of you who found a way to survive the pandemic, you'll be among the finest entrepreneurs to ever grace the Canadian marketplace. And if you're a small business owner or considering that path, go back into my back library. My Small Business Matters series, I personalized the stories of so many small business owners and then I invited three thought leaders to provide advice to help them get to where they need, want, and deserve to go. And I want to give a shout out to my partner at RBC for all you're doing to help small business owners with advice and tools to help them get to where they need to go. And finally, to all of you, small business owners were hit hard in this pandemic and those in retail and hospitality were closed down or kicked to the curbside. If you have money, get out there and support our local businesses and our local economy. Small Business Matters. I'm Tony Chapman. Let's chat soon. Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman has been a presentation of RBC. Fridays, join Tony Chapman for Chatter That Matters on the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network. Remember, this episode is also available as a podcast. Find it using your iHeartRadio Canada app.